Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, teachers, homeschoolers, book clubs, and more save big on Bain eBooks. Plus, a short story by NASA space scientist Les Johnson, and part two of my three part interview with David Weber and Richard Fox about their new novel, Governor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I'm Bain Associate Editor David F. Shirod, sitting in for your usual host, Tony Daniel. Today, we bring you part two of a three-part interview with David Weber and Richard Fox about their new novel, Governor, which is a prequel to Weber's classic, The Path of the Fury, and is also the first in a new planned series called Ascent to Empire. But first, the news. There's only one day left to take advantage of the July Bain Teacher's Guide ebook sale. Until midnight tomorrow, July 31st, 2021, that is, we're offering discounts on every Bain ebook that has a Bain Teacher's Guide associated with it, a list that is long and wonderful. Bain Teacher Guides are developed by teachers and education experts for use by homeschoolers and teachers in the classroom. All Bain Teacher Guides provide a background of the novel, a complete and comprehensive summation of the story, a vocabulary list, individual chapter summaries, focus questions, and initiating activities, reading comprehension quizzes, and thought-provoking discussion questions. These are amazing resources for amazing books, and they're available for download from Bain.com, and will continue to be even after the ebook sale is over. Looking for a quick read? Head on over to Bain.com and check out Les Johnson's short story, Murder in Space. Maxim Kezirashvili, was the CEO of RKK Energia, Russia's largest and most profitable space company. One of Russia's most wealthy men, he also just happened to be running for the Russian parliament and was on his way to becoming future president of the Russian Federation. But he'd gotten himself killed when he and his expensive space yacht became interplanetary dust and gas after the ship's fusion drive lost containment. The experts who examined the wreckage said the chances this incident was a mere accident were nil. Enter Charlie Shattles. When a person like Kezrashvili is killed in a freak accident, it's Shattles' job to find out what really happened. And that's it for the news. Now for part two of my discussion with David Weber and Richard Fox. I guess we probably need to talk about Terrence and um, his son a little bit more, but since we're talking about Yaira, um, she's one of my favorite characters in the book. Um, and I know Richard, you, I guess David said, you know, you guys created her together, but you kind of took it and ran with her. Um, and I, I guess we've heard a little bit about her uh, backstory, but if, if there was anything else you wanted to say about let, her and, let, and her let, creation and stuff. Let, yeah. let me throw one thing in. Sure. I knew what we needed the character to be functionally in the book okay beyond that i had very little concept of how this character would be built that's entirely richards okay now i tweaked and fared a little bit here and there 
but Iaira, who I agree with you, is one of the outstanding characters of the book, um, is basically exactly the character that Richard built her to be. Well, th th thank you. Thank you, David. Very nice of you to say that. It's um, true. Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> with, with Ira, it was so, you know, we said we, you know, from in Fury Born, we knew that the, the, the cadre were a big part there. So, you know, I thought, okay, at the end of this series, we're going to have to have the cadre one way or another. So, how do we plant the seeds to get the cadre? And we know how just the cadre, just how dedicated they were to the emperor. So, I was like, okay, how do we have a character who's going to want to be that dedicated to Terrence Murphy because he's going to be the first emperor? Not really a spoiler. And so, okay, <laughs> let's. Let, let, let's figure out you how. You gave it away. Turn it. This is a prequel problem, right? <laughs> no, what will happen to this Anakin guy? I hope it works oh, out wow. for him. Yeah. Sent to Empire, but there's no Empire yet in this series. What's going on here? Yeah. But so Ira, she, you know, okay. So I need to like, okay. So she's going to be the nucleus of the cadre. How do we get her to the point where she's one close to Terrence Murphy to be to be that nucleus, and then two. How do we get to the point where she really wants to be the nucleus of something who's, as, you know, not, I don't want to say Praetorian Guard, but, you know, the day to day Secret Service sort of guard for the Emperor? It's like, okay, well, how do we do this for Ira? And then, then one, you know, I also wanted to make her kind of a very sympathetic character. And then what I've noticed that readers really tend to like is not like, but they, if you have a character who is otherwise sympathetic and is, is treated unfairly for whatever, for no fault of their own readers will be like, that's not fair. And they start to like that character a whole lot. And Ira, I started kicking her really early. I just don't stop kicking her mm -hmm. for, for quite a while. I mean, and then everything with her brother. And then when she gets put into you know the service and you know, she's struggling because she didn't one have a whole lot of education or military training. She's just sort of falls into her spot, gets rescued by uh, Terrence Murphy and his son. And then you know, just through happenstance, you know, she she gets to uh, to exact revenge on the governor that left her for dead, and then the sequence of events just sort of follows from there. So you know, you know, when when with Ira, I knew where the character had to start. I knew where she had to go. So then it's like, okay, let's make her interesting along the way. And so I'm I'm real happy with her. And then this the stuff that's going to happen with her in the next book and the follow on book. It's going to be great. So. <laughs> Well, we'll look forward to it. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more. I'm. We've kind of talked about Terrence Murphy a lot, but not maybe directly. Um, so, uh, you know, we mentioned he is uh, the grandson of the this, you know, person who essentially started the Navy. Uh, he's married into this Heartworlder family, but he's also, you know, like you said, he's sort of, um, you know, the way I think of Don Diego in Zorro or even Bruce Wayne and Batman, you know, sort of played at being this I just want to go be Captain Kirk and explore things, but he's got a different agenda. Um, he, he really would have preferred. Well, that's true. Yeah. Survey for his yeah. entire career. Unfortunately, there was this war going on. Yeah. I think. Okay, if you look at the the characters who are heroic in, in my books, one of the things that almost all of them have in common is that they take responsibility um that uh and i think that's one of the things that some people think make them good leadership models okay they never shirk responsibility they take responsibility for things that other people might not think were their responsibility because they can do something about it 
Okay, they're, they're that kind of person. And I think that that resonates with readers because that's who we would like to believe we actually have as leaders. Yeah. Uh, that, that there are some people, and there are some people like that out there. It's just that these days it seems to be a little harder for people to, to find them. Um, but, and that's, that's really the core of Terrence Murphy. He is a man of decency, he is a man of honor, and he is a man who takes responsibility. Um, plus, he has had suspicions about Rishathan involvement, although even he doesn't know how deep it goes, in the creation and the continuation of this war. Uh, you find out that there's this whole tin hat brigade, tinfoil hat brigade out right. there. Kind of a conspiracy uh, theorist, and yeah, that way rather. But, yeah, yeah, bunch of bunch of conspiracy nuts. <laughs> um, but uh, and he's been also pushed into this direction because of what he has figured out happened to his father. Uh, both that his father was basically hung out to dry because after all he was dead and he wasn't a member of the 500 uh, when the admiral who was actually responsible for what happened wrote his report. So he does, it's not like there's no personal motivation in this for him, but his primary motivation is 56 billion dead is enough. Okay. Um, and his father-in-law uh, thinks that he wants to go out, and, and Terrence has pretty much sold him on this, that he wants to go out and get a governorship under his belt to get his ticket punched for a political career later on. Uh, and it's like his father is thinking at one point that with his name plus his, you know, a successful governorship under his belt and whatnot, this guy, Terrence could actually wind up the prime minister of the, of the Terran Federation. It certainly would not be out of his reach. And he's got all this opportunity on his plate in the world of the 500. And where his loyalties actually lie is much more with the people out in the fringe who are paying the price for all this. And none of his patrons in the 500 realize that. And he's been to some lengths, he and his chief of staff, O'Hanrity, uh, have been to considerable links to keep anybody from suspecting uh, what they're really after. And what they're really after is proof of Rishathan involvement. Okay, they, they have no idea where this is going to go when they set out. Uh, but the problem is that they are responsibility takers. And when they find themselves in the path of having to deal with a crisis, they are constitutionally incapable of punting it to someone else. They have to deal with it. And in the process, and by the end of the book, they find themselves essentially outlaws um, because the 500, the 500 sees him as a warlord at the end of the book, okay? And what they're terrified of is having enough of the fringe go over to a warlord to come in and, and take out the 500. They're not worried about the Federation, even though they talk about that a lot. Okay, what they're really worried about is this cozy little oligarchical right. empire 
that they've set up. There's, it's significant, for example, that when they send troops out to arrest Murphy, okay, they take them from the Capitol Division. The Capitol Division is part of the Federation Army, and it is where sons and daughters of the 500 go to serve their hitch in a safe place. They never deploy out of the home system and whatnot, but they're like this, you know, elite aristocratic um, um, division of troops. In Path of the Fury, there is no Federation Army. There's only the Federation Marines and the cadre. And the reason, uh, the empire, imperial army, the reason there's no imperial army is because the army is basically the tool of the 500 uh, in, in, in Murphy's time. And it's the Marines of the fleet uh, who come over to his, to his side uh, and who eventually wind up kicking the army's butt. Um, and so at the end of the war, end of the, the, the civil war, uh, Murphy, uh, partly as a sop to the Marines, uh, but also because he agrees with them, basically just completely disbands the Federation Army. And the guys in the army who came over to his side become Marines. And there is no army going forward there's only the marines and at least somebody online said well weber just doesn't like armies that's why and i'm like no i'm <laughs> fine with armies you know it's just this particular army blotted its copybook you know but yeah uh richard anything you want to add about murphy well, or any of that uh, the, yeah with terrence uh, one thing is that he is a revolutionary leader uh one way or another because you know, when the book ends when the series ends it's an empire it's no longer uh, what the 500 had so, you know, Dave and I we were both students of history. We spent a long time thinking like, well, what kind of a revolutionary figure is this? The more George Washington type, the Cincinnatus type. Well, we know how he ends up. Is he more like Napoleon? And then we, there's a lot of, how do we, you know, go about this revolution? Because it is a revolution, even though, and slightly a coup, because there's a lot of big part of the military involved in this. And then, you know, and I like to, to, to lean back on Shakespeare and Coriolanus. I love that, that play. And I'm, like, I'm thinking maybe we could do some of that in here. And so we went to a lot of, we've had a lot of discussion about how Terrence is going to actually overthrow the status quo and why he becomes emperor, why he stays emperor, and then how the empire, you know, sticks around versus, you know, you have this autocratic sort of regime. How, it, how does it evolve into what's in uh, Alicia de Vries' time? So there, there's, there's a lot more coming. It, it's uh Terrence is, he, he's got a lot of problems on his plate. He doesn't even know about yet. And so it's, it's just going to get worse and worse and more complicated for him as, as the things go along. Hey, right I've now he kicked. may be thinking, I'll just go to earth and take his fleet with me and they'll listen. And then, yeah, right. then, yeah I've got, a, a, there was one story from English history. I forgot what it was, but there was, you had a peasant who led a revolt and he, he goes to London and he goes to the king and says, these are my demands. And I the king I says, you, you, you have to listen to my demands and he's like the king's like okay and then the peasant thinks he's done and he's, yeah, he's, he's heading done. home <laughs> and then the king's sheriff catches up to him and hangs him on the way home and i, I got that was I, Matt tyler yeah was that tyler's name i think it was Matt tyler yeah yeah we're, we're going to we're going to have that reference in the next couple <laughs> books where i probably it's going to be oh i'm ready where, where, where murphy might have this pie in the sky idea of like no no i'll get him to listen to me and then it'll be over with and then 
or Henry will, will, will bring this guy up. And like, it doesn't, it doesn't always work out that way. Mm-hmm. So we need but, to be prepared. Yeah. Well, the, I think one of the significant things about Murphy. Okay. For anybody who's read uh, Mutineer's Moon. Okay. There are some affinities between Murphy and Colin McIntyre in that book. Um, of course, Colin winds up the emperor of an empire that's been dead for 5,000 years, uh, which is you know, just, just to make an AI happy, you know, kind of thing. But uh, neither one of them wanted to be emperor, okay? Um, Colin never saw it coming in a thousand years and when he came home he expected everybody on earth to think it was a big joke that they just had to do that to convince uh the 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 ai that controlled the what was left of the imperial fleet uh to put it under his command and he's really surprised when his senior advisors say no i think this is a really good idea uh, you know, we need somebody from outside the standard power equation on Earth, you know, to hold us together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Terrence, in some respects, is facing the same situation because even in the heart worlds, deep down inside, there is no legitimate central authority at this time. There's the de jure central authority. There's the central authority that actually controls the levers of power. But in the Chinese sense, they've lost the Confucian mandate. They're not doing their jobs the way they're supposed to be doing them. They're not meeting their responsibilities. They are, they are um, uh, gaming the system rather than uh, um, doing what they're supposed to be doing for the citizens they're responsible for. But when they go down, there's nothing there to replace them. Okay. One of the things Richard, like, like Richard said, we're both historians. One of the things that we're both well aware of is that nobody has ever repealed the law of unintended consequences and that it would be a real mistake for anybody to assume that they could be in a position where they're going to overthrow a government for whatever reason and have a smooth transition of power or even that the people who staged the coup or whatever in the first place, they're more likely to end up dead than in charge at the end historically. Uh, and so Murphy is going to have to do some fancy footwork just to stay alive. Um, and um, his uh, Harry, his his chief of staff and his closest friend, uh, obviously, in, in the course of the book, uh, is going to be instrumental in his managing to do that. But honestly, the other thing that he's got going for him is that the men and women who are crewing the ships, who are going to be in the Marine regiments and whatnot, they know there's something different about this one, okay? They know that he was actually under orders to fall back and not defend Silvertree if it was attacked at all. 
and he's planning on defending it when he's outnumbered two to one in in warships and he's not going anywhere okay either they win this battle or he and his son die right along with them okay and they know that and that's what makes him so terrifying to the 500 really is the fact that these people who are at his back trust him completely and they don't even really fully realize the extent to which their actions are driving his actions into being more confrontational isn't the word that I want here, Richard, but into taking on a leadership role that goes beyond where he ever thought he was going to have to go. And the hell of it is he can't say no to them because without him, they go down. And he can't let that happen after they have put their faith in him. Okay. He's the least messianic guy you're ever going to meet. And yet that's how he is regarded in many respects by the people who are supporting him. Um, I like when I'm building uh, a world for a, a fantasy novel or a science fiction novel or a series of novels, I like to use history for building blocks. But I tend to take a block from this set over here and one from that set over there. And they're not going where the history that I stole from to begin goes. Okay, they're, they're, they're the structure and the time that I've spent in studying history uh, helps to inform the decisions that I have them ultimately make. Okay, because this is what people in similar situations actually did kind of thing. But Murphy is, I can't think of a good actual historical parallel for him. There, there have been people in history who could have been him under these circumstances. But we gave him a set of circumstances and a challenge that was far worse than almost any real world military or political leader has had to face, okay? Um, and it's been interesting to me to see how the storyline has evolved as in parallel with, or actually perhaps what I mean to say is how our understanding of who he is has evolved in step with the storyline evolving, okay? Character growth is always something that you want. In this case, Murphy is both growing in ways that we hadn't really thought about concretely going in, but he's also revealing levels of himself to us that we didn't realize were there when we first began writing about the character. But I think, Richard, that it's fair to say that they're inherent in the decisions that he makes, and we needed him to make those decisions. And so that means 
these aspects of him were there, even if we hadn't brought them to the surface of our own thoughts yet. Does that work? Does that yeah, make it, sense? It's really helpful to know where the character is going to end up before you start with him. Yeah. So and otherwise, it's kind of you, you might be like, well, you know, if you don't if you wrote if you started governor and you didn't know he was going to be the emperor, the, the emperor at the end of the series, it could have been a whole different other series of pathways that, that he could have gone. But we know where he's going. So we know that the hard part is just figuring out how he gets there. Yeah, I think I think part of it is if you don't have the end destination mapped out if you know where you're going to go in the first couple of three books, you know, kind of thing, but you don't have it mapped out, then you have a greater degree of freedom to shape the character by adding things to the character that weren't there originally and revealing them to the reader. And as the character responds to things that have happened and grows and changes, you can do that. Okay. And that's an advantage in some ways. Okay, but Richard's absolutely right. If you know where this person is going to end up at the end of the story arc, okay, you know historically who, who this person is going to be, then you're getting from point A to point B. And in one respect, that's very simple-minded, you know, we get from here to there. But the story is always about the characters. It's always about the, the individuals who the reader cares about one way or the other, whether they really, really like them or whether they're a uh, boil and you just hate them, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Um, you care about them. And watching the person who you hadn't fully sketched out in your brain, it's like, it's like watching an old fashioned negative in the, in the bath and the dark room where, you know, features begin coming to the surface. Uh, in Honor Harrington's case, I had built a bunch of her character that I didn't reveal to the reader uh, until the third or fourth book because I knew the character was gonna grow and change, but I also needed something that I could reveal to the reader as I went along in those early books before she really took off on her own shared experience in the novels. Uh, and so, for example, people didn't realize that the honor that they met in Basilisk, who was this cool, detached person, was cool and detached in large part because there was a part of her life that she totally had refused to confront, and she'd refused so well that she didn't even realize that she'd refused, if you follow what I'm saying. Okay, I built that into her deliberately from the beginning so that I could peel that part of the onion uh, with the reader. Okay, that's not so much the case in Terence. What we have found in, in Terence are things that we didn't know were there, plus things that have been added to him by his experiences in the book. So it's, it's fun because the, the muse is with us as we're going along. So we're writing and all of a sudden the, 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 the muse will show up and like, He's okay with the execution. I'm like, oh, he's okay with the execution. Oh, all right. yeah. oh okay, fine. Keep going. So, it's uh, when the muse shows up, you got to listen because otherwise yeah. she'll be upset and she won't come back. So yeah, that that's bad. That's yeah. bad. I've had that happen. Mm -hmm. I loved the okay the the sequence at the the wrap up sequence 
with our rotten, nasty uh, uh, league admiral. Richard, I think that was you, wasn't it? It was. Uh, I, I, I want. I, I originally had it go a little different way, but you changed it. Yeah. So, but it was. But I knew. You know, like I, I knew how I wanted that. That what happened to that league admiral. I knew how. I knew how I wanted it to happen. Yeah. And it was. Uh, you know, it went pretty well. Is just. Uh, I think like the the actual. You know, the, the final little bits of mechanic could change just a little yeah. bit. Yeah. But I, I, I thought that was okay. That was sort of inevitable, wasn't it? And, <laughs> and I thought that it showed a lot of who Murphy is, the way that he did it. Okay, I especially like Richard has Murphy speak directly to uh, a couple of 300 POWs uh, in the course of, of this scene. And in the way that Murphy addresses them, we plant the seed for a significant uh, uh, occurrence uh, later in the book series. And it was done very, very well. I say that from, from a writer's, a storyteller's uh, perspective. Um, and it too, like I say, uh, you know, peels away a little bit more of of the of who Murphy really is. It really shows us a little bit more of him. Uh, one of the reviewers commented on hyper competent personnel, um, and in one respect, uh, that's that's fair. Um, the other problem is that one of the things I've discovered over the last two, three decades is that a problem for a storyteller is that really smart people make smart mistakes, not stupid mistakes. If you have them do something stupid, then it's like, well, okay, the author decided that this character had to throw the fight. So the character was stupid. Okay, that, that for some reason in these two chapters, the IQ dropped by 75 points, you know, and then it went back to being, you know, who you were to begin with. Um, but the problem is that if they make smart mistakes, frequently the reader doesn't realize they were mistakes. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> instead they were, you know, because it worked, right, you know, kind of thing. Um, it's kind of like, you know, if it works, if it's stupid and it works, it's not stupid. Okay, well, if it's smart and it works, then obviously it was the right thing to do. Okay, um, I don't want to go into where you might see that uh, in this book, <laughs> uh, but in the Honor Harrington books, it's the whole thing uh, when she's the POW at Cerberus. Okay, I mean, there are several places where Honor Harrington has really screwed up by the numbers, and because the reader agreed with what she was doing, it's like, well, she's perfect. She never makes mistakes. I'm like, she shot a POW without a trial. Okay, <laughs> she missed because somebody grabbed her, but she shot this guy without a trial. You know, well, that's okay because he needed to be shot. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> you know? So like, I actually—that's why—that's why I actually have Mike Hinky. Michelle Hinky, her best friend, the Empress's cousin, uh, critique one of her her 
campaign, one of her battle plans at a dinner party at her house with students from the from the Naval Academy. And at the end of it, uh, Michelle Hinkey says something along the lines of, in short, if it was not the most uh, most reckless, all or nothing, go for broke plan in the history of space warfare. I have yet to find the one that was, you know, because everybody's like, she was brilliant. And I'm like, no, she was dumb. She just, you know, I mean, it's like, but the problem was, the problem was, and this is something that I think is going to show with Murphy too as, as we go along. Frequently, the mistakes that strong competent characters make is because they can't bring themselves to do something else okay mm -hmm. and that's really what murphy is all about here once he gets out there and he starts running into this you know he knows what the smart play would be okay certainly from his personal perspective okay and he can't bring himself to do the smart thing from the personal perspective because it's the wrong thing from the personal perspective of his own morality and his own responsibility. I think that drives characters into making mistakes that are not recognizable as mistakes by the reader. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think sometimes it actually makes them look more competent than they really are because they get themselves into this mess because they couldn't not do what they did. And now they have to figure out how to get out of it again. Okay. So it's hard to write a truly competent character, especially a military character, because the stakes are so stark for military commanders. Okay, political leaders can hide their mistakes. They can pretend they didn't make them. They can shirk responsibility. They say, well, I did my best. You know, I mean, we hear a lot of that kind of stuff. Okay, a military commander who is looking at the bodies finds that a whole lot harder to do. Um, I've told so, several times, um, many times, the, the story that... Uh, uh, about Colonel Mack telling me what the second worst moment in any military commander's life is. Um, and it's when you've done everything right and you've still got a kid dying in your arms and there's not anything you can do to stop that. And as far as he's concerned, that was concerned, he's gone now, but that was the second worst moment in a combat commander's life. And I said, well, you know, what's the first? And he said, the first is when you realize this is what you do best and that you really shouldn't be letting other people do it because they won't do it as well. Um, and that has informed a lot of the military characters that I've built over the years. And I think, Richard, that that would be Murphy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I remember there's a, there's a great, uh, if you've ever played Mass Effect, there's one character whose name I can't remember, um, but he, he said, you know, no, it has to be me. Someone else might get it wrong. And I think that's, you know, that is a lot of military officers out there who think that exact same way. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, it has to be out me out there making this decision. But then also, you know, it's from back from my time as in the military is there was a couple of times where I, you know, I was the intelligence officer and I said, hey, uh, we, there's some bad guys over at this house here. And I realized I'm the one providing this information to the company. And then I said, okay, I need to go with you. So let me go with you because if this goes wrong, I need to be there 
you know, to, to have the responsibility. Yeah. And, I, and I remember the soldiers I was with, they were amazed that I had gone with them on this, this raid. It was, it was like two days before I was supposed to go home for my, yeah. my sister's wedding. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I, I'm the one who decided we need to go do this. I convinced the company commander, I'm going with you. And then it was <laughs> kind of funny. It was, it was a good thing I was out there because they found this, uh, th this, these, uh, this, this equipment for old artillery stuff. And there's this, this T that you can, you set up and that's how you zero all the guns. And a lot of the soldiers had found this and they're like, Oh, look, the guy's doing this. I'm like, no, this is an old piece of garbage. Uh, doesn't belong, but I need to keep it just in case and bring it back. And then, so, and be the Iraqis boy, they're really happy to let you have stuff if they think the alternative is that they get detained. So, <laughs> so that piece of military gear ended up in my office. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but, so, but, but you know, it's, it's for, from what I've noticed is that the better military officers, when they say, Hey, there's some threat I'm putting you into, I need to go with you. And that's, you know, basis of leadership because if, if soldiers are out there and they hear company commander wants us to go take the hill. Oh, dang. Where is he? Oh, he's back in the rear getting coffee. We had to go charge the hill. Now Believe me, that, that company commander, he, he's not popular. Well, there's, there's a level at which an officer needs to remember that his or her primary function is to manage okay uh and i don't want i don't want that to sound like i'm downplaying it at all but the primary function of the officers are is to provide the direction and the cohesion okay and so sometimes you don't want senior officers exposing themselves to enemy fire you know it'd be really bad if the guy who has the plans for the entire operation got picked off by the sniper you know at an inopportune moment but there's a difference between military management and military leadership and military leaders can be good managers as well uh good managers can be good leaders but having that both sides of that skill set is invaluable to any military organization. I don't know if you've noticed, but in Tolkien, in the, in the Lord of the Rings, every single one of the good guy commanders basically fights in the front line. Okay, when Theoden is in his decrepitude, he's staying home and sending his son and Aomer out to fight. Denethor is sending Faramir out to die, etc. And they are both in the bad commander mode at that point whereas sauron of course is constantly sending out his minions without him uh Aemir, faramir uh aragorn they are all in the front line okay which is a stupid place for the king of gondor to be before the gates of of, of moria i mean the gates of mordor excuse me no, you know, if you're going, even if the purpose of this army is to die hard to distract Sauron, the emperor, the king belongs back with the standard where he can exercise command, he can be the cohesiveness of the unit. But Tolkien served on the Western Front during World War I. And so he was deeply affected by senior commanders who, in the view of the guys in the trenches, never came, never knew what was really going on, just fed us into the meat grinder, et cetera, et cetera. And so you wind up with this false note in, in the books. But again, the reader doesn't recognize it as a mistake. 
because it is the mistake that a truly heroic person makes, okay? Um, and that's one of the problems. It's a problem with any kind of fiction, but it's especially a problem with military fiction. Um, and it's also, if you look at the generals on the Western Front in the, in the First World War, they were actually a hell of a lot more aware of what's going on and a lot more innovative than they were given credit for by the guys in the trenches who saw 60,000 men die on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Okay, and it would be hugely unrealistic to expect those guys in the trenches to have had any other view of them. But if you think about the fact that the tank didn't even exist at the end of 1914 and was the decisive implement in the 1918 offenses. Uh, okay, three years basically to produce an entirely new weapon system and deploy it, okay? That is not the mark of unimaginative commanders. Even if you go with the, the, the view that, well, it was forced upon them by other innovators, blah, 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 blah. They picked it up and they ran with it. They were trapped in a situation on the Western Front, especially Haig and the Brits when the French regiments started collapsing in, in mutiny. The only way to keep the war going, to not lose it, was to feed their troops into the into the disaster and and they did it uh now you can argue as to whether or not it was worth keeping the war going to do that but if their political leadership said nope no negotiated settlement and the russians are collapsing on the eastern front and the french every i think Seriously, I think virtually every regiment in the French army mutinied at, or at least refused orders at one point or another uh, in 1915, 1916 because of the massive casualties they'd already taken. Okay, so it's up to Haig to try and do something in the mud bath uh, in, in, in the Somme. History has not been kind to the, to the generals. But personally, I think it should be the political leadership that is being judged for what happened there. And that whole side excursion actually does, in many respects, relate to what's going on in Governor, because Richard and his, his, his interest in, world, in the history of World War I tied perfectly into the situation that I had visualized as existing uh, before Murphy takes action in the, in the prehistory of uh, In Fury Born. Okay, it was, I did not know about his interest in, in, in World War I. I sort of began suspecting as we were going through the book and I'm finding poppies and other things, you know, floating around in here. Uh, but it was a, uh, a bit of serendipity that uh, I think paid very large dividends, Richard, uh, for where we, where we wound up with the book. One of the, one of the first things I ever wrote was a, a screenplay about the Red Baron. And later on, I put, I put it, turned that into a book proper, but it was, yeah. So it was yeah. military historian. Again, I got to thank Trust Kiesling for uh, everything she did because she was a history professor at West Point. So. Yeah. Well, I've always, you know, I've never understood people 
okay, intellectually, I understand people. Emotionally, I've never understood people who don't like history. Okay. Uh, it's like, to me, if you don't know history, you have no idea who you are or how you got to where you are. And you're going to go back and repeat exactly the same mistakes. I think it was John W. Campbell who said, uh, history repeats herself and repeats herself until finally she gets tired and lashes out with a club and says, now will you learn? Okay. And um, I think it was Jimmy Breslin who said people talk about, you know, how bad it is to repeat history over and over again. He says, actually, we're lucky if we get to repeat it instead of having something worse happen. <laughs> and and there's unfortunately a lot of truth to that in in the real world um and it is the basis for quite a bit of what's going on in governor you know it, it, you know if you really want to write books about people who screw up study history <laughs> okay yeah. Uh, Jim Bain told me one time, he said, he said, David, we can't do this. I said, but Jim, this actually happened. And he said, I said, it happened at a place called Sudan, you know, <laughs> get the Franco-Prussian War. And he said, no, no. He said, I, I believe you that it really happened. I said, good, that I can do it. He said, no, you can't do it. I said, why not? And he said, because there's a difference between what really happened and plausibility. And the reader has to believe that somebody would actually do this, okay? Um, and it's a, it's a fair point. There's actually, there's a passage in one of the Honor Harrington novels where in the final edit for the book, I actually created a situation in which a very smart admiral seems to do something incredibly stupid because I had pulled some information that she had out from where I'd originally put it in the book and I'd intended to put that information back in later in the book, and I never got it reinserted. So the reader doesn't know that she has been told what the maximum effective range of this new weapon system is, which is why she doesn't immediately say, well, we better get out of the way now that it's been launched. And in fact, she realizes that, okay, they may have told me that, but that's Honor Harrington over there who just fired all these missiles at me, and she wouldn't have done that if they didn't have the range to get here. And as soon as she realizes it, she orders her fleet to, to retreat. But her decision loop, while she's overcoming the information that she's been given has been just, it's been long enough that her ships can't cycle their drives to get out of the way. Most of them can't before the missiles get there. And I hadn't realized that I'd left that information out in the final edit. And somebody was giving me grief over the fact that I decided this admiral had to take a fall. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She was like, complete, you know, this completely rational given what she knew. And the guy says, what are you talking about? We were corresponding. And I said, well, the briefing where she was told, he said, what briefing? And I'm like, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, you know, it's like, like Honor Harrington says, human beings make two things, tools and mistakes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That was part two of a three-part discussion with David Weber and Richard Fox. Tune in next week for the thrilling conclusion. And now we bring you a thrilling conclusion to Frank Chadwick's steampunk tale, Murder on the Hockflieger Ost. 
Etienne watched through the narrow crack of his partly open stateroom door as the French lady, the baron, a ship's officer and an older gentleman passed in the corridor. Once they were gone, he entered the hallway and walked in the opposite direction, soon came to the door guarded by one of the stewards. Etienne walked up to him as casually as he could manage. Quite some excitement, eh? he said. Yes, sir, the young steward answered. And that woman, he touched his fingertips to his lips. A real beauty, the steward agreed with a smile. And she is French, like you, sir. Oh, I am not French, Etienne corrected him. I am Genesier, from the island of Guernsey. We all love Queen Victoria very much there. The steward looked confused, but Etienne forged ahead. Did you perhaps overhear her name? She seems quite charming. Yes, uh, Gabrielle Courbière. She deals in art. Etienne thanked the steward and walked back down the corridor in the direction he had just come. Gabrielle Courbière. The name seemed to sing in his head. Gabrielle, he thought, and then shook his head. A woman this courageous and resourceful, this dedicated to their cause, would not be so frivolous as to go by her first name. No. She would be simply Courbière. She had the strength and majesty of a mountain, he thought. Yes, a mountain. Mont-Courbière, he said to himself, and Villon repeated it, liking the sound of the name. Now he must rescue her from her terrible danger, even if doing so cost him his life. First, he would need to create a diversion. Gabrielle found one thing in this affair puzzling. If Baron Renfrew had murdered the agent Armbruster and taken the stolen plans which seemed increasingly likely, why had he agreed to a search of the cabins? One possibility was that he was considered above suspicion and so his cabin would not be searched. Another was that he had hidden the plans and perhaps already disposed of the leather document tube. But why would he do these things? Why not simply turn Armbruster over to the authorities and recover the plans in that manner? Germany was an ally of Britain and would surely have cooperated. Then she remembered that in her own stateroom was a leather document tube containing charcoal sketches of the French countryside and rendered in the style of Millet. She hoped she was above suspicion as well. Otherwise, explaining the presence of those items could prove extremely difficult. Oh, my, she said. I beg your pardon, the baron said. I was just recalling that I uh, forgot to lock my stateroom when I left it earlier. I hope nothing has been disturbed. I would normally say you have nothing to worry about, but that seems patently untrue this evening. He said this with wry humor, Gabrielle noticed. Despite the physical evidence, it was difficult for her to reconcile men she observed standing beside her with a verdict of murder. On one hand, he seemed genuinely puzzled by those events, but on the other hand, somehow amused by them, or perhaps entertained, would be the better word. 
What sort of a man is entertained by the events surrounding the murder of an acquaintance? Another party of officers joined the group in the small passenger lounge they had appropriated as a headquarters. The chief purser raised his hand for attention and then explained the situation to the others. They would break into teams of two crewmen each, one a purser's assistant with a pass key and one a ship's officer for additional authority. As the passengers would be asleep, they must wake them and conduct a search as politely as possible and without alarming them, but with dispatch. What does this tube look like? one officer asked. I believe I can help with that, Baron Renfrew said. I sent for my man Winslow and... Right here he is now. Gabriel turned and saw a very well-dressed man and the lounge, and he carried the very document case Gabriel had seen with Armbruster. She nearly gasped with surprise, but managed to restrain herself and maintain a look of outward calm. Madame Cobier, going by your previous description, it seemed this case of mine was similar to that carried by Mr. Armbruster, which you say that was so. The Baron asked this with his eyes locked on hers, and his expression intent. Gabrielle stepped forward and looked at the case carefully. I would say it is identical. A murmur ran through the assembled officers. Of course. The case we are looking for contains rare art, doesn't it? This one contains only my fly rod. He removed the lid and showed the officers its contents. Several nodded in appreciation of the obvious quality of the rod it contained. Also, I doubt Mr. Armbruster's missing container will have my name on it he added and pointed to the engraved brass plate attached near the carrying strap. A Christmas gift last year from my wife Alexandra, he added. He was very clever, this Baron Renfrew, Gabrielle thought. He had deflected any suspicion from having the plans by bringing Armbruster's container here to display. Or perhaps it was the case's double. Was he planning a switch of his own? But how would he know what the container looked like? No, unlikely. This must be the case itself. But why would Armbruster's case have Renfrew's name on it? Could the Baron have affixed it to the case after stealing it? Perhaps. Are there any other questions? The chief purser asked. I have two additional points to make, Gabrielle added. The chief purser glanced to Renfrew and, apparently having received the right nonverbal reply, nodded to her. First, the thief may have transferred the art to a different container, so look for any document tube. Second, and most importantly, you must, under no circumstances, open and examine the container. It contains very delicate artwork, which is potentially priceless, both in its own right and for its historical significance. I have the equipment in my cabin to examine it and determine its authenticity, but uh, none of you has been trained to handle such fragile items without damaging them. Such damage would be unconscionable. 
The chief purser, perhaps mindful of Baron Renfrew's earlier advice concerning the delicate relations between France and Germany, reinforced her instructions not to open the container, and then he sent the parties on their way, leading one himself. Gabriel and Renfrew were left alone in the lounge. Renfrew drew a cigar from the inner pocket of his jacket and fingered it idly. You intend to smoke here? Gabrielle asked. Renfrew looked down at the cigar and then back to her with a smile. No, I am not suicidal. We are surrounded by hydrogen gas cells, and they are notorious for giving off thin but constant stream of flammable gas. And that is why all firearms and incendiaries are collected upon boarding. All the interior lights are Edison bulbs. And there are no carpets. Wouldn't want to have someone shuffling along in their stockings and cause a static electricity spark. It's a bother, of course. I'd rather enjoy a smoke now and then. Gabrielle realized with a sinking feeling that her own revolver would do her no good, unless she intended to incinerate herself and everyone else aboard, which she did not. Something still tickling at her brain. When had Renfrew's nameplate attached itself to Armbruster's container? Your wife, Alexandra, are you close to her? Gabrielle asked. Renfrew frowned. An arranged marriage and a complicated relationship. She's very dear to me, but uh, in a distant sort of way. You have no doubt heard I spent considerable time with other ladies. No, I know nothing of your personal life. How would I? He smiled at that, as if she had made a joke. Then he looked at her in dawning realization. You are serious. You really don't know who I am, do you? I thought you were Baron Renfrew. Was that a lie? It is one of my titles. I am Albert Edward, Baron Renfrew, Earl of Dublin, Duke of Cornwall and Rothesay, Prince of Wales, and heir apparent to the British throne. Gabrielle felt momentarily light-headed as she realized the extent to which she had misinterpreted the situation in which she found herself. But uh, the name Renfrew... Whenever I travel unofficially, I travel under that name, although everyone, everyone, it seems but you, knows who I am. It is simply my way of making it clear I wish no fuss or ceremony. Then your relatives in Germany? Yes, you've probably heard of my nephew, Willie. He's the crown prince. As his poor father, my brother-in-law is dying from throat cancer. I'll wager Willie is Kaiser before the next year is out. That should prove interesting. Before Gabrielle could reply, they both heard shouting in the hallway and the sounds of a tussle. The door burst open and two ship's crewmen entered, holding between them a short, dark-haired man who struggled and shouted in English. I am the subject, Britannique. You will release me at once. The Prime Minister will hear of this. Now what's all this? Renfrew asked. The chief purser entered behind the struggling trio and squeezed past them.
This man was running in the corridor and pounding on doors, alarming the passengers with a story of a fire on board. It nearly started a panic, but my men apprehended him. He claims to be English. Genesier, the man practically screamed, from the island of Guernsey. Ah, we, oui. The Bellywick of Guernsey, Gabriel said. It is one of the Channel Islands between France and Britain. But you know this man is not truly a British subject. The British passport is extended to them as a matter of courtesy. But he is a subject of the Baron Renfrew's family directly, from before, when they still ruled Hanover, n'est-ce pas? Most of the men, aside from Renfrew, looked confused by her explanation. The prisoner, his longish hair disheveled and nearly covering his eyes, stared at her like a wounded animal, as if somehow she had betrayed him. But how could she have? She had never seen him before in her life. Herr Hauptzahlmeister, another crewman said from the open doorway. We found this when we searched the man's cabin. He entered, holding a leather document tube identical to the one in Gabrielle's stateroom. Might this be the correct tube, Madame Courbier, the chief purser said, taking it from the crewman and handing it to her. She stood holding the tube and looking at it as she thought. She looked up at the man being held by two crewmen in front of her, the man who spoke with a French accent and traveled under a British passport, and in an instant she understood everything, well, nearly everything. I think you should take that tube to your stateroom and examine it, Madame Courbier, Renfrew said. When she looked at him, she thought his eyes, particularly serious and fraught with meaningful intent, although she could not determine the exact message he intended to convey. If this is the artwork, it will be quite valuable. Perhaps a man can accompany her. Of course, Herr Baron, the chief purser replied and gestured to the crewman who had brought the tube. Wait outside the door where she makes the examination, Renfrew added. That was convenient, she thought. In ten minutes she returned to the lounge, having quickly verified that the stolen plans were in a leather tube and having exchanged it for the tube containing the charcoal sketches. Only Renfrew and the chief purser remained of the previous crowd. She assumed the young Frenchman had been placed under arrest and removed to a holding cell. So are these the drawings? Renfrew asked with a small smile. Oui, but uh, unfortunately they are forgeries. Quite good, but unmistakable to an expert. And without value. Would you care to examine them? When he shook his head... She handed the tube to the chief purser. Evidence, I believe, she said. Danke schön, Madame Corbier, the chief purser said, and then after a glance at Renfrew, he departed and closed the door behind him. They have taken the man from Jancy away, she asked Renfrew when they were alone. No, the baron answered. The fellow shouted, You will never torture her name from me broke free and ran. 
No one was much concerned, as there's nowhere to run on a Zeppelin a thousand feet in the air, but the fellow got out onto the observation deck and dove over the rail, shouted a slogan of some sort as he went, but no one could make it out over the noise of the engines. You wouldn't have any idea whose name he meant, would you? Is he dead? Really? Gabrielle asked. I should think so. He would have to be the luckiest man on earth to survive that fall, and from what little I saw of him, he did not strike me as very lucky at all. So you found the battleship plans and have them safely tucked away? Gabrielle again felt light-headed, but retained her composure. Her first inclination was denial, but that would be pointless. The evidence would be easier to discover. Instead, she took a moment to think. Had you wanted to arrest me, she said, I believe you would have done so while the chief purser was here. So you intend to allow me to keep the plans and return them to my superiors, we? Oui? But your loyalty to Britain cannot be questioned, so I must ask. What renders the plans worthless? Renfrew smiled. What do you think? It may be that they are forgeries, she answered, intended to be stolen, but that would be discovered once they were examined by our engineers. So what would be the point? Perhaps they could be bait, a catch to eliminate whatever agents are involved. But for me, that is too complicated to be believed. Or they could be authentic, but simply no use to us. This seems most likely. But then, why is there such a fuss, closing the Pas de Calais crossings and so close to Christmas? Perhaps, he answered, because the men in charge of protecting them do not realize they will be of no use to you. Their job, after all, is simply to protect, and the less they know about the secrets themselves, the better. As to the plans, this new class of ether warship relies on its superior performance, on the use of an analytical engine of new design and enhanced function, the improved baggage model 330. The place where the analytical engine will be installed is clearly marked on the plans, but without the device itself, they will do you no good. Ah, three things remain unexplained, Gabrielle said. First, why do you not tell your security people to call off the fruitless and unnecessary search for the plans? Because the head of security is a political opponent, and this failure of his will embarrass and weaken him. Your second question? How did you know I was a spy? Knowing Waldo Armbruster as I did, I knew he would never have come up with rare art or the idea of trying to forge it, so I concluded the entire story must be a fraud aimed at finding that case. But if it was the wrong case, as I know it had to be, there must be a right one somewhere. And what might that hold of interest to France? The missing plans seemed the obvious candidate. 
It is gratifying to have my speculation confirmed. Your third question? Knowing I am the French spy, why do you allow me to return with these worthless plans? If you intend to force me to be a double agent, I do not think you will succeed. Nothing so dire as that, my dear. The truth is, I wish your safe return to serve as a message to your superiors. There are times when the interests of Britain and those of France are actually congruent. Unfortunately, our governments can seldom work in accord in those cases while remaining publicly belligerent. And this prolonged state of public belligerence is too useful for too many politicians in both governments to be set aside. Do you understand? You wish to open the door to discreet and uh, unofficial cooperation with my department when our interests coincide? Precisely. She thought about that for a moment. That explained almost everything but left one critical question unanswered. Was she standing in the presence of a murderer? If so, she knew she was still in profound danger. I cannot speak for my superiors, she said, but I will convey this desire to them. But I must repay my personal debt to you myself, for that I must ask one more question. Renfrew smiled in warm anticipation. Have you hired two bodyguards to travel with you? A look of surprise replaced his smile. Bodyguards? No, nothing like that. I generally travel alone, except for my valet, Winslow. Well, then, uh, I must tell you, there are two men on board who harbor ill intentions toward you and seem prepared to act upon them, although I do not know how they intend to do so. Gabrielle then explained the entire overheard conversation in the salon, the one man telling the other to attend to their business, and their attention on Arm Bruster as part of that business because he had been involved with the Prince of Wales in some sort of trouble. Ah, that would be Baccarat, Renfrew answered. Chemin de Fer, to be precise, Arm Bruster introduced me into several games in London. He lost heavily, I'm afraid, and there was a row over his debts. And this involved you? How? Well, it was passed around that I was present, and Baccarat is illegal in Britain. Illegal? Really? A game illegal? Why? It can be very high stakes, and anything which provides an opportunity for the wealthy to transfer their fortunes to the inferiors is generally frowned on. But as to these two chaps... Chaps! she interrupted him. What does this word mean? A chap is a fellow, that's all, he answered. Oh, and a bounder? A bad sort of chap. Now as to these two men... Was one thin and one heavy? Gabrielle nodded absently, her mind on her earlier mistakes. She did not reprimand herself. Her mistakes had been honest ones, based on ignorance, which had now been corrected. Still, she understood how remarkably fortunate she had been to escape disaster. In the future she would have to prepare more meticulously, 
But first she must finish the last bit of this affair. She noticed Renfrew was still talking. Pardonnez-moi, she said. I was just saying, I, I think I've seen those men before. I should have been more alert. From what you say, they wish to uncover some indiscretion with which to embarrass the royal family. Now that you've alerted me, I can take steps, and I am grateful for that. But they are English. Are they hired agents of an enemy power? Doubtful. I suspect they are minions of my domestic political enemies. Oh, and now I will do you one more service of a more personal nature. Please follow me. Again smiling broadly, Renfrew did as she asked, and they passed through corridors and down companionways until they reached the door to the engineering spaces. Gabrielle had never been here before, but she had studied the layout of the Zeppelin carefully and knew what lay below. These areas were prohibited to passengers, but she passed through without hesitation. The crewmen, working at the electrical generators, looked up at them. As they anticipated, bowed quickly to Renfrew, then smirked and nudged each other as they saw Gabrielle leading him. They passed along a narrow corridor flanked by tanks of compressed gas, which Gabrielle took to be hydrogen, then down another companionway and through a door into the open night air. The air was cold, and the drone of powerful engines to each side assaulted their senses. Gabrielle was sensitive to loud noise, but her attention was immediately drawn to the landscape stretched below them. A winding river shone silver in the moonlight, and the scattered lights of small villages among the miniature grey fields and forests seemed like enchanted fireflies, which never winked out. The sense of height made her dizzy, and she was completely aware that a man of Renfrew's strength could simply throw her over the railing, and no one would ever question him about it. Still, this was the only place she could also find a measure of safety. The prince stood beside her, their shoulders touching, and he followed her gaze downward. Yes, the view is different without a glass window, isn't it? he said. Somehow more immediate. I've never been down this low on the ship before. Neither have I but I noticed this platform when I boarded. She walked down the metal steps to the catwalk below, holding the brass railings for safety. When they were both there, she turned to Renfrew. Now my service to you. The hydrogen leaks, but as it is lighter than air, it all goes up. We are below the gas bags here. You may safely smoke your cigar. Renfrew looked around doubtfully. That makes sense, but are you certain? Observe, she said, and pointed to several stubbed-out cigarette butts near the side of the walkway. Renfrew smiled and lit his cigar. Gabrielle shivered in the cold, and although Renfrew offered the loan of his coat, she refused. Instead, she fit both of her hands into her cloth handbag. For warmth, she told him. 
but inside the bag her right hand curled around the small Le Faucheux revolver. Firing it here would be as safe as Renfrew smoking his cigar. She slowly cocked the hammer, and she rested her hands on the railing, the concealed pistol pointed at Renfrew's torso and only inches away from him. For several minutes, the two enjoyed the view in silence. How did Armbruster die? she said at last. Or should I ask, how did his blood splash on your shoe when no one disturbed the blood in the cabin? Renfrew took another long draw on his cigar before answering. As the doctor said, he fell and hit his head on the table. He was quite drunk. When we hit a patch of turbulence, over he went. Damnest thing. And there I just stood for a moment. Well, there would be awkward newspaper headlines if I stayed around to explain, so... I took what I came for and left. Your fly rod case, she said. Yes, although what I really wanted was hidden down in the bottom. A diamond necklace I had made in Amsterdam, Christmas present for my wife, Alexandra. It's quite valuable, which I suppose is why Waldo pinched the case. Would you like to see it? Merci, no. I never wear jewelry. Its weight feels peculiar, especially around my neck. My clothes feel almost uh, a part of me when I wear them, but jewelry feels hard and alien. You wear a locket, he observed. It was my mother's before she died. I am used to it. Inside her handbag, Gabrielle carefully lowered the hammer of the revolver. Renfrew took another long pull on his cigar. I assume you will be getting off at Vienna now that you have what you want. You are a very odd young lady, Gabrielle, but I certainly hope to see you again. Yes, I do as well, although I do not believe there will be a romance. No, he said and smiled. No, you are a very handsome man despite your sinning hair and being somewhat heavy. You are too kind he murmured. Not at all. When I say something, it is because I believe it is true, never to flatter. So you are handsome, but uh, your eyes show no pain, only determination or amusement. Either you have never felt pain, in which case you are a monster, or you are able to hide it completely, in which case you are dangerous. I must say he said after a moment. You are quite good at avoiding flattery. The truth is I am rather occupied with Daisy Creville these days, so a romance would be unlikely in any case, but I would value your friendship. Gabrielle looked out over the railing and saw the clouds above them already pink with the dawn and the land below turning from black to gray. Far below she saw a flicker of movement the wing of a hunting bird in a dive, perhaps an owl making the last kill of the night. She shivered. Why would someone take his own life? she asked. I honestly can't tell you, Renfrew answered. 
I won't pretend that life is always easy or pleasant. It isn't. But it's so damned interesting. I can't for the life of me see why someone would just step away. Nor can I, Gabrielle said. That was Frank Chadwick's Murder on the Hockflieger Ost. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Weber and Richard Fox for sitting down to talk with me. And thanks as always to Tony Daniel, our regular host, for letting me sit in for him today. You know, Tony is actually at a chili cook-off competition, hoping to bring home a blue ribbon. I've actually got a bowl of his chili right here, and let me tell you, it is delicious. I asked him for the recipe, but he just said it's an old family secret. But he did give me a hint. He said that most people under-season their chili. If you want it to be good, he said, the spice must flow. Gonna have to get to my kitchen and do some tinkering. This is David Ashirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.